Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for the Advocacy and Pharmacy podcast. This podcast, hosted by ASHP's Government Relations Division, provides an update on what ASHP is currently involved with on the Hill at the state level, our upcoming advocacy opportunities, PAC fundraisers, and strategies to increase member involvement with your representatives. My name is Jillian Schulte-Wall, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today is Dr. Christopher Jones. He's the Acting Director for the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, CDC. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Jones. Let's kind of jump in and get started on today's topic, which is the recent proposed changes to the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids. And I guess before we get into that, um, we can do a quick overview of what the guideline is and who you are. So we're really lucky to have Dr. Jones with us today. I don't know, Dr. Jones, do you want to give us a brief kind of bio, um, how you got to CDC and where you are now? Sure. Thanks for having me on. As you mentioned at the top, I'm the acting director of the Injury Center at CDC. My regular role is the Deputy Director of of the Injury Center. And I have been back at CDC for a little over three years, but have previously served in my time as a public health service officer at CDC twice before, and have worked in a variety of different places within health and human services, but largely focusing on substance use and mental health over the last decade. So happy to be here today and really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about the draft CDC guideline that is currently out for public comment and and excited to share some of the proposed changes to the clinical practice guideline during our talk today and really talk about the, the process that we went through to get where we are and to make sure that, you know, membership of ASHP and pharmacists who are sort of doing this day-to-day and are on the front lines of helping patients manage pain are aware and are able to provide feedback as we're really looking to get information from a broad range of, of, of partners during the public comment period. Yeah, so as we get started, I guess for those who might not be familiar with it, what is the guideline and and kind of who is it geared toward and what does it do? Sure. Well, let me take just a step back and say that CDC issued its first opioid prescribing guideline in 2016, and it was really aimed at primary care clinicians who are managing adult patients who have chronic pain. And we know that Pain continues to impact the lives of millions of Americans each day, and addressing pain is a public health imperative. And we've learned a lot since release of the guideline in 2016 that, one, the science of how we manage pain has advanced, but we've also heard from patients and providers, including pharmacists, about how the 2016 guideline has been implemented, where there are opportunities for improvement, and how we can better incorporate the latest understanding of how to manage pain. And so that's really what brings us to the draft guideline that's out for public comment is uh, really an opportunity to refine and improve the recommendations of the 2016 guideline based on the latest science and the lived experience of patients and providers. And as we've undertaken this process over the last year and a half, two years, two things have really been sort of at the forefront for us. First, that patients living with pain deserve safe, effective, and informed pain care. And second, it's critical that providers have the latest information to inform 
shared decision-making with their patients. And so this update does give us that opportunity to make sure that we're striking the right balance, that clinicians and patients have the latest information, but also that the guideline is structured in a way to enable individualized patient-centered care. And that's a great overview. So I guess when you look at the guidelines, one of the things um, as, a, as a government relations person, we always look at is how they're going to be implemented. And my understanding is that it's something that is meant to kind of guide how practices conducted. So, you know, how primary care prescribers work with their patients. It would inform pharmacists as well. But I know CMS and some other agencies actually use it in their regulations. So I guess one of the biggest questions we're going to get is, you know, how has the guideline been revised at this point? So in 2015, I know there were some dosage limitations that were included in that guideline. Is that in this guideline? And what else has changed that folks should really be aware of as they look at it? Yeah, well, thanks so much for that question. And I, again, I think we've learned a lot since the 2016 guideline and, and really going into this revision, one of the things that we wanted to be very clear on is that this is a clinical tool, that this is really intended to help clinicians and providers and patients inform their decision-making, but it is not intended to be a rigid law or policy or regulation. And one of the things that has been most clear is that coming out of the 2016 guideline, there were times where people sort of took tenets from the guideline and applied them in law or regulation as inflexible standards of care. And we know that that has resulted in harm to patients, whether that is patients who, you know, were doing just fine on their opioid, but their doctor all of a sudden said, well, now I can't prescribe to you at this level anymore, and you've got to get down to a, you know, a lower dose very quickly, or I'm not going to prescribe to you at all because you're on this high dose. And those are the types of misapplication of the guideline that we are working to avoid and mitigate with the current draft guidelines. So much of what has changed is both structurally and and contextually in the guideline, the language that we use is to try to reinforce this idea that it is a clinical tool. It is intended to support clinicians and patients in individualized patient-centered care. But there are really two broad buckets of sort of what's new. One is that the 2022 clinical practice guideline includes an expanded scientific scope. And the 2016 guideline, again, almost exclusively focused on chronic pain in primary care settings. With the 22 guideline, we've expanded that to include recommendations and more specific information around acute and subacute pain, as well as broadening the guideline to apply to a broader range of providers in outpatient settings. And this is really based on, again, the the advancing of the evidence base since 2016, and a, a better understanding that those early decisions in how we manage acute pain can really set patients and providers up on a longer-term trajectory. And so it's really important that clinicians and patients have the latest science about how do we best manage acute low back pain or migraine or a fracture or a sprain. And so you'll see in the draft guideline that the specific recommendations have been built out substantially for acute pain. We've also provided updated and more specific information on the use of non-opioid medications and non-medication treatments for both acute and chronic pain. And one of the other areas where we've made changes, and again, this comes from 
lessons learned from 2016, as well as new science, is that there wasn't a lot of information to really guide tapering of opioids or discontinuation of opioids. And so again, because of misapplication, patients were often required to taper very quickly. Uh, and we know that that can be challenging and, and highly problematic for both patients and providers. So the draft guideline now includes much more guidance drawing from the evidence base around how to really approach a taper with a patient. How do you do that in a shared decision-making strategy? And, and how should you approach and how quickly or slowly might you approach tapers and have set goals from the beginning with the patient and, the, and provider? So I think that's a really an, an important addition. We've also infused throughout a focus on equity, recognizing that there are longstanding inequities in access to pain care, especially for racial ethnic minority groups. And we really want the guideline to be able to enable equitable access and provision evidence-based um, pain care. And then, as I mentioned, we've also sort of restructured how the guideline is presented. And again, this is really with an eye towards being very clear that the clinical practice guideline is a clinical tool. One thing that might be a subtle change, but we think is an important change, is that we actually call it a clinical practice guideline. So the 2016 guideline was the opioid prescribing guideline essentially, but not specifically a clinical practice guideline in name. We've also included an opening box at the beginning of the document that again, clearly states what the document is and what it isn't in order to help mitigate misapplication. And then we've provided in each of the recommendations, a new section called implementation considerations, which are really sort of bullet points to help operationalize the guideline, to provide some additional context that clinicians and patients could consider as they are working to make decisions around pain care. And then lastly, and you mentioned this in your question, I think another really important change is that we have removed specific thresholds around morphine milligram equivalents or days supply from the bolded recommendations. And again, this was based on feedback from our advisory committee to the injury center and our opioid work group that was comprised of external experts and patients and caregivers, where it was just very clear that when those hard thresholds are included in bolded recommendations, it makes it all too easy to use those out of context as rigid standards. And we felt that it was important that, you know, in the spirit of individualized patient care, that we have that latitude for clinicians. So we still provide information around what does the science say around dose or duration, but we don't have it as a bolded sort of hard threshold or within the bolded recommendations. And we believe that, you know, taking it out of the bolded recommendations allows us to provide more nuance around what is the science for dose and duration. And then the last thing I'll say is that one of the areas that we've also learned from 2016 is that the 2016 guideline was again intended for patients who are initiating opioids for chronic pain management, but often were applied to patients who had been on opioids for many years. And so we have structured and clearly articulate in the recommendations, those recommendations that apply when a patient is being considered for initial treatment, 
versus those that apply for patients who have already been receiving opioids as part of their ongoing pain care treatment. So we really tried to take a, a fresh look at what is the latest science say, what is the lived experience of patients and providers, and how do we strike a balance that provides guidance and a clinical tool while also working to mitigate against misapplication as a rigid, inflexible standard of care. Yeah, and in reading the new guideline, as a non-clinician, I will say that I was really impressed with the way that it was kind of retooled to be a much more flexible document in some ways, at least for policymakers, especially non-clinicians who read this. I think one of the things that we'd heard a lot from members pretty recently is that they were seeing more and more situations where patients, even longstanding pain patients, were being turned away at their pharmacies. And, and often this was happening in the community pharmacy level. And it wasn't because the pharmacist in charge was concerned about the dosage or wasn't aware of the prescriber, it was because of limits that the PBM had placed on dosage control and things like that due to what was in the previous version of the guideline. So I think this should probably be very helpful in mitigating some of those problems that we've been seeing. But it was interesting listening to you talk about how the guideline was put together. So policymaking in general is a messy, messy business. I mean, regardless of what you're doing. And I imagine when you're getting clinicians into a room to talk about something like this, that is actually, you know, very important to people's health and, and potentially mitigating risks to their lives, it's probably a higher threshold in terms of concern and putting together the policy around it. So when you do updates on a guideline like this, or even when you're putting one together for the first time, what does the process look like from the CDC side? Yeah, I, I think this is a, certainly uh, an important question. And we have really undertaken a multi-step, multi-year process to get where we are today. And again, this is based on lessons learned from our experience in 2015 and 2016 as we developed that guideline. But I think fundamentally, we have taken a process that includes systematic reviews of the science, so what's the latest science, hearing from the lived experiences from people living with pain and healthcare providers who are navigating the pain care space, and engaging with outside experts. So sort of those three large buckets have been the core pieces of getting us to where we are today. So on the science side, we commissioned the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, our sister agency, AHRQ, to conduct five systematic reviews that really serve as a scientific basis for the guideline. And those focus on opioids for chronic pain, as well as acute pain, as well as non-opioid medications and non-pharmacological treatments. And again, the science has been changing and maturing over the last five years. And we felt, again, it is difficult for busy clinicians to try to synthesize all that information. And so the systematic reviews are, I think, really important and allow us to provide much more granularity and specificity for different types of pain and what modalities might best benefit patients for that. So that was a systematic review process. And that follows HRQ's evidence-based practice centers process where, you know, the draft is put out and people, public comment can be provided to that draft, ultimately resulting in a finalized systematic review. So the science part, fairly straightforward on systematic reviews, but we also recognize, again, knowing and recognizing the harms that have resulted from misapplication of the guideline and the fact that having a guideline in existence on paper doesn't change practice. So we also felt it was really critical that early on in the process, 
we heard from the voices and experiences of people who wake up every day experiencing pain, as well as the providers who are navigating that journey with those patients. And we did this through a series of individual conversations, as well as open public comments, where we solicited individuals to engage with CDC in a series of structured conversations about what has been their experience after the 2016 guideline. How are they managing pain? What are the challenges that they're experiencing, both from a patient and caregiver perspective, but also from a provider perspective? We also held several public advisory committee meetings where we talked about the guideline and the guideline process and, and had public comments during those meetings to, again, get feedback from interested members of the public about the challenges or successes or barriers or opportunities related to pain care. And then in the third bucket, hearing from outside experts under our federal advisory committee, which is the Board of Scientific Counselors for the Injury Center, we asked them to establish an opioid work group to provide independent external input on an early draft of the revised guideline. And again, this was done through an open, transparent process where we put a call out for interested clinicians that had a variety of subject matter expertise in pain, different types of pain, acute pain, chronic pain, as well as psychology, psychiatry, addiction, medicine, as well as patients and caregivers and family members to also participate. And so over a period of about nine months or so, that group met and went systematically through the early draft of the guideline and provided a series of recommendations that were presented to our advisory committee and to CDC last summer. And those documents are available for people to see. I think what was clear from all of these efforts is that one, pain is nearly universal, but also that it's unique. And there really is not a one size fits all. And people with pain experience pain differently and different types of pain respond to treatments differently. And so all of this information really fed into the draft that we have out for public comment, where again, we tried to strike that balance of, of how does this get operationalized in the real world setting? What does the latest science tell us? And how can we structure a guideline that again, provides sufficient guidance, but also has built-in flexibility for the individual circumstances of a you know, patient and provider. And so it sounds like the guideline was crafted with a lot of feedback and input all along the way. So I know ASHP will be commenting on the draft and we will pull a lot of information from our members from that, but is there anything our members should be kind of doing independently to help with CDC with the process or is there information that would be particularly helpful for CDC to have as it finalizes the guideline? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a great question and certainly want to reinforce the idea that public comment is open until April 11th. We want to hear from as broad a range as possible people who are doing this day in and day out. So I think, you know, from an organizational perspective, you'll go through your process and make comments. But for individual pharmacists who are listening and you know, who are out there practicing, please take a look at the guideline and see are there opportunities to reinforce messages and recommendations around equity? Have we struck the right balance in the specificity of our guidance around different types of pain and treatments that might be useful? 
Have we struck the right balance in thinking about what do we know about dose or duration of treatment or tapering or how to have those conversations with patients, you know, around urine drug testing or identification of, you know, potentially opioid misuse or opioid use disorder. I mean, that day-to-day on the ground experience and feedback is really critical because we ultimately want to produce a document that can be implemented, that is useful to clinicians. So getting that feedback directly from the people who are going to be asked to say, how do you make this work in in our health system pharmacy? How do you make this work in retail? Or if you work for a PDM, like how do you, how do you help move evidence-based pain care along through the guideline? And I think any and all feedback is really welcome. Even feedback about how we should think about implementation. Who are the people we need to partner with? How do we think about clinical decision support and electronic health records? Getting to some of those implementation pieces would also be very valuable feedback. If there are important pieces of science that people feel are not included, we would love to see that and you know get feedback on those pieces. So it really is a very open process where we are really encouraging uh, anyone who has some equity in this space to give us feedback. Thanks for that. I'm constantly begging the drum with our members that the agencies in general really like to hear from clinicians. They, you know, they, they work with ASHP and other groups pretty regularly and we establish relationships of our own, but I think invariably it seems like it's more valuable at the end of the day to hear from the people that are actually providing the care directly to patients than it is as much as I, I value ASHP as, you know, I think that frontline feedback really carries a lot of weight with agencies. So I really appreciate you kind of talking about how you use it. So one of the other things that I was curious about I mean, the Injury Center does a lot of things beyond just the guidelines. So are there other things as we kind of hopefully move into a post-COVID landscape that our members should be paying attention to or that pharmacists in general should really be kind of focused on moving forward? Yeah, well, I think there are lots of opportunities for pharmacists. As a pharmacist myself, I think it is an exciting time. I mean, even in the context of COVID, pharmacies and pharmacists have been asked to expand their scope and do things that at a scale I don't think we ever anticipated we might be doing. I mean, testing, mass vaccinations, you know, dispensing of medications under EUAs on a regular basis. I'm hopeful that we can take from that expanded work and apply it to other areas. I think in the context of overdose and our work in the injury center, between 2019 and 2020, there's a 30% increase in overdose deaths. And we've seen a shift over the last decade from, you know, an overdose crisis driven by prescription opioids that's now driven by illicit opioids like fentanyl, illicitly made fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. And so there's a real opportunity for pharmacists to engage in harm reduction work. There's state laws that enable pharmacists to dispense naloxone, third-party dispensing or dispensing understanding order or, or even direct prescriptive authority. And we know that there are many missed opportunities where naloxone could be used to save a life. So I think there's an opportunity for pharmacists to engage with patients and providers in the community to think about expanding and scaling up naloxone access. I think similarly, we see that there are huge disparities in access to medications for opioid use disorder. While pharmacists don't have the same latitude to prescribe or dispense in the same way they do naloxone, there's certainly an opportunity for collaborative care with pharmacists and clinicians around medications for opioid use disorder or helping patients who 
have initiated things like buprenorphine or ER naltrexone who are coming to pharmacies, helping them be retained in care. I mean, we often see that retention in care falls off over time. So we know from other chronic disease management work of pharmacists that we have an important role in helping patients achieve their goals and, and contributing to the patient provider or patient clinician relationship and health outcomes. So there's an opportunity there. And I think just generally looking at, you know, other injury center topics like older adult falls, there are pharmacist-based interventions in thinking about how medications might contribute to fall risk, where there are opportunities for interventions there as well. Or suicide prevention is another strategic priority for us in the injury center. And we know that certainly mental health, while not the only risk factor for suicide, is a substantial risk factor. And so when there are patients who are coming in and receiving mental health medications, again, an opportunity to reinforce a trusted relationship with pharmacists in helping patients achieve their goals and stay safe. And certainly uh, unintentional exposure to medications in the home, uh, opportunity to reinforce messages around safe storage of medications, uh, you know, very clear bread and butter role for pharmacists to play. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think the landscape of clinical practice is generally changing and expansion of telemedicine and minute clinics and other ways of thinking about the collaborative care team really does present some opportunities for pharmacists to continue to build on the gains that have been made during COVID-19. I think that was just a reminder of how much work the injury center does and how much work pharmacists do. And on that kind of the segue there. So you said you're, you know, you're a pharmacist in addition to your, your day job. So this is sort of off topic, but I, I do think you have a very interesting role. And I think a lot of folks listening to this will be curious as to how you got there. So how did you end up as acting director for the injury center? I have no idea. I would say that my career has sort of chosen me. I started at CDC in the strategic national stockpile. So really working in bioterrorism, pandemic influenza. I made a move to FDA at, at one point early in my career and got interested in drug safety. There was work happening in the opioid space, in the prescription opioid space, and that led to opportunities at the White House. And it just sort of took on its own legs from there. You know, when I talked to pharmacy students in particular, people go into pharmacy school and they think, okay, hospital or retail, like that's our mm -hmm. option. And I always say there's, there are so many more options. In public health, there are pharmacists working in a variety of different places, and you would never know they were a pharmacist unless they told you that they were a pharmacist. And so keeping your options open, being open to new opportunities, I think is really important. But I think more than anything, my pharmacy education comes into play every day in the work that I do from a research perspective, from an understanding what's going on in the injury and violence space from a pharmacological perspective, from an epidemiological perspective. But more than anything, I think that training around communication and building consensus and synthesizing complex information and being able to communicate it in a digestible way and thinking strategically are, in my view, are sort of characteristics of pharmacists generally, right? So we have to understand all of this scientific information, but then at the point of retail pharmacy or in the hospital, you're engaging with a patient, you know, you have no idea what questions are going to ask, but you've got to be able to quickly translate that scientific information to something that's actionable and digestible for them. 
And so I think that sort of skill set really sets pharmacists up for success in a variety of different places in public health. But this is not a path that I would have ever known I would have gone down in pharmacy school, which I think is, is the sort of exciting part about it is just being open when opportunities present themselves and not being limited in, in your thinking about where you might want to go. If you've got an interest in something, explore it, go for it. You never know what door will open. Thank you so much for your time today. This has just been a really great conversation. I think it'll be really beneficial for our members. So I just want to thank Dr. Jones for taking the time to join us today to talk about CDC's proposed changes to the opioid prescribing guideline. So be sure your voice is heard. As a pharmacist and a constituent, you have a tremendous influence at the state and the federal level. Visit ashp.org to learn more about key issues, grassroots efforts, and ways that you can get involved in ASHP's advocacy efforts. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.